Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. We're looking for The Lingamite Finds the Three Kings. Here we are. Enjoy! At what time are we expected to pass the Three Kings? Mr. Leslie asked Captain Atwood. It was only around seven in the morning, and the captain was standing on the deck of the fog-enshrouded steamer, the Alingamite, as it crept forward at four knots an hour, fog whistle blowing. He had every reason to take an interest. Earlier in the voyage, he had been speaking with one of the ship's officers over dinner, and they had been discussing how dangerous it was that the three King's Islands were lacking in a lighthouse. The officer had grimly agreed, and stated that in his opinion, there would be a big smash up there. Everyone on board who was familiar with the area would feel better once they had passed the Three Kings, especially considering the thick fog. The captain responded that it was his opinion that they would pass the treacherous islands around nine that morning. As all the passengers made their way down to breakfast, Captain Atwood remained at his post, determined not to leave while they were still in such poor conditions. After breakfast, Mr. Leslie returned to the deck and gazed out into the fog that obscured everything even a short distance from the ship. As he stood on the deck, he could hear another passenger ask the captain if they had passed the Three Kings. The captain had said that they had. It was therefore to the surprise of everyone on the deck almost two hours later when the peak appeared in front of them, looming suddenly out of the fog. The captain shouted for the ship to go astern at full speed. The ship telegraph that communicated messages between the deck and the engine room dutifully tapped out the message. Still, the ship advanced towards the rocks. The captain repeated his message, and with more urgency, the telegraph repeated the message. It was never determined why the order was not followed, but the delay was to prove to be deadly. Though there was about four minutes between the time the rocks were seen and the ship being wrecked, it happened with a creeping inevitability as the telegraph continued with the unheeded order to reverse. When the collision happened, it was almost gentle due to the ship's slow speed. The ship hit the rock and bounced off. There was still enough forward momentum to drive the ship against the rock again. This time, she swung around, bringing her stern close to the rocks. As the waves rose and fell, the ship repeatedly struck the rocks. It did not take long for the people aboard to realize that she was doomed. Captain Reed was traveling as a passenger, and he had been relaxing in the smoking room when he heard the telegraph. He could not hear the entire message, but he did recognize a sound of an order for full speed. In these conditions, he was acutely aware of the fact that full speed in any direction meant that something bad had happened. He rushed to the deck in time to see the cliff looming ahead. He was just in time to watch the ship strike with a telegraph ringing in his ears. Passenger or not, Captain Reed was a man of the sea, and he went to Captain Atwood immediately to offer his assistance. He also offered his opinion that they were wrecked on the Big King Island. He was right about them being in the Three Kings Island group, but he was wrong about their exact position. They had wrecked on the West Island. This was not the time to figure out their coordinates, however. Captain Reed offered his services to swing out and take charge of the first lifeboat and attempt a landing. It was best for the lifeboat to be commanded by an experienced seaman, and it was never even considered that Captain Atwood would take on such a position. As the captain of the ship, 
It was his duty to remain so long as the ship still had people on board in order to organize evacuation and keep order. The launching of the first lifeboat proved to be chaotic. Captain Atwood and Captain Reed did their best to fill the boat, mostly with women and children, with only enough men to man the oars. But as the ship was lowered, more men jumped into the water in the attempt of boarding her. Captain Reed lowered himself into the boat once he had determined that she was full and was inclined to stop for some more men, but Captain Atwood ordered that he instead leave and search for a safe landing. Captain Reed obeyed the order, as Captain Atwood was the captain of the Alingamite, not Reed. There was a real chance that if the lifeboat remained close to the sinking ship, she would soon be swamped by desperate men who saw her as their only chance. As Captain Reed pulled away, he did his best to assess the damage to the Alingamite, and he judged that she would remain afloat for some time. He lost sight of her within three minutes in the thick fog, though, and was forced to turn his attention to the task at hand, getting his boat of shaken passengers safely to land. Captain Reed had not been able to see how truly damaged the Alingamite was. The ship was sinking quickly. This did make it easier to lower passengers onto the life rafts and lifeboats, as there was now less distance to go down. Captain Atwood remained calm and steady at his post, doing his best to ensure that everyone had life belts and that the evacuation remained orderly. Indeed, one of the few people who did not have a life belt on was Captain Atwood himself, who seemed far too preoccupied with everyone else's safety to worry about his own. It seems particularly striking that the Alingamite should sink when only going four knots, considering her long history of speed. The Lingamite's top rated speed was 14 knots, but she had at times achieved 15. It was noted by the papers that she was regularly ahead of schedule. The Lingamite was not the newest and latest ship, but she was also by no means decrepit. Indeed, she was often described as elegant. A steel screw-back steamer with two small masts in case of emergency. She had been built in 1887 and had immediately been put on the route between New Zealand and Australia. The Australian government had been so impressed by her that they selected her to receive gun mounts and had approved her as an armed troop transport if the need should ever arrive. She would never be called on to serve, but it was considered a sign of her being a good ship. The Lingamite had not lived life entirely without incident. In 1893, she rammed the schooner the Guiding Star off the coast of New South Wales. The schooner did not stand a chance against the 2,585-ton Alingamite and had sunk. Both the master and the mate of the Alingamite were blamed for the incident. Now, the Alingamite had struck something that was more unyielding than she was. In about 20 minutes, the steamer had slid nose-first into the deep water at the foot of the cliffs. If Captain Atwood was not the last man on the ship, he was definitely one of the last. As she finally sank beneath the waves, he found himself in the water. Despite the fast rate at which the ship had sunk, he had overseen the launching of six lifeboats and two rafts, but had not ensured that he had a place on any. Luckily for him, one of the small boats had remained close, and the people on her pulled him aboard, shaken and in rough shape, but alive. Now they faced a new problem. 
None of the rafts or lifeboats had navigational equipment, and they were adrift in the same low visibility and rough conditions that had caused the Alingamite to beat her fate in the first place. Captain Reed had by now realized that he had been wrong when he had said that he thought this was Big King Island, but that made matters worse rather than better. He had directed his crew all around the rocks that they had struck, but he still hadn't found a safe place to land. Though he had come to the shore of multiple small islands at this point, all of them had been too rocky to draw near. Though he did not find a landing place, he did find another lifeboat that was overfilled and starting to sink. They were not in a good place to remove the people in open sea, so Captain Reed ordered that the sinking boat follow him to the lee of the closest island so that the people could be transferred. In their search of a lee shore, they had better luck. Here, they not only found a safe landing spot, but also another boat, and in total, three boats landed. After time, one of the rafts also found the spot, swelling their number to about 70 people in total. They did their best to find food by taking the women's hat pins and turning them into fish hooks, which did manage to catch some fish, though it was quickly becoming clear that they were going to need proper supplies. The other raft also struggled to find land. It suffered from a lack of any leadership or experienced seamen. The lifeboats that had been launched first had been loaded with the idea that each boat should have experienced men to take charge and see to it that they reached land safely, but by the time that the rafts had been launched, it had been more chaotic and many of the men on them had been forced to dive from the sinking ship and swim to them. They were already cold, wet, and tired, and they had no idea about how to properly manage the oars or the raft, especially when the tides seemed to be against the idea of them reaching land. In the end, the eleven men on the raft found themselves on Big King Island at the foot of a cliff that they could not climb. The men spent a miserable night sleeping on the shore with the cliff face looming over them. They set the raft adrift after carving the name of the ship and that they were wrecked into her, hoping that maybe someone might see it and come to investigate. They did have the foresight to keep the rope, however, hoping that it would help them with their newest problem, the cliff. In the daylight, the men found that the cliff was less daunting than they had thought. They were able to climb up it and then found a place to camp. One man had some lucifers in his pocket, but they were so wet that they were useless. The thought was to dry them out, but the weather was not only still windy, but also still cloudy. In the end, one of the men pulled the glass from the face of his watch, and they were able to dry out the sulfur in little rolled balls under the glass from the occasions when the sun did peek through the clouds. They then fashioned these balls into new matches and attempted to light them. They had six in total, and it was only on the sixth attempt that they were finally able to light a fire, which made the entire situation more hopeful. They also found a good deal of drinking water and some goats, but they were not able to find any more people. After a fruitless attempt to catch goats, the men admitted defeat and resigned themselves to living off of crabs. Things were made better yet when Captain Reed arrived in one of the lifeboats. Captain Reed was not a man to sit still. No sooner had he landed, but he became determined that the next day he wanted to return to the wreck in search of supplies. 
The only things that they had managed to land with was a cask of water and a cask of brandy, and the brandy was almost immediately and gallantly dispensed to the women in the party. The water proved to be less needed because there was a small spring nearby that Mr. Leslie soon had turned into a pool by taking an axe to the rock it flowed over. The men also did their best to build the women a shelter against the poor weather before going and spending a fairly sleepless night trying to ensure that the boats were not smashed in the poor weather. The next day, Captain Reed and six men to man the oars set out to try to find what they could among the wreckage. They first made a detour because one of the men remembered that one of the ship stewards had left the small boat with the intention of trying to find land himself. The last anyone had seen of him, he had found a rock that he was standing on. They found the man still on the rock, crouched down after a miserable night, and rescued him. They then continued to the wreckage. They did their best to find the spot where the ship had gone down, but without a compass they could not go too far, and they could not be certain of the exact spot anymore. What they mostly found were the bodies of the dead. In the end, they were forced to give up having only recovered two cases of whiskey, some oranges, and some onions. Now, they tried to make their way back to their camp, but they found themselves thwarted by the winds and the tide. The men had been rowing for two days, their hands were bleeding, and they had not eaten. They were in no condition to fight the elements. Remembering that there were goats on Big King Island, Captain Reed gave up and changed his course. The weather had still not improved, and Captain Reed did not dare leave the boat knowing that there was a good chance of it getting smashed if they tried to pull it up on shore. Instead, he gave his men permission to go on shore and enjoy the fire that the men who had landed on the raft had managed to light, and he would stay overnight in the boat and keep it safe. The men who had been on the raft had enjoyed an easier night, and Captain Reed hoped that they would be able to take over the oars of the boat from his men and help transport everyone to Big King Island. On the larger island, there was at least some game to catch, making it comparatively comfortable. He never needed to make the attempt, however. While everyone tried to hunt for provisions the next morning, one of the men started to shout, and pretty soon everyone saw the yellow stack of a steamer coming towards them. Captain Reed was cautiously optimistic, since he had already seen one ship pass by them in the distance. The three King Islands were a known shipping hazard, and no ship happily came close to them unless they had business there or had lost their way like the Alingamite had. The men took the fire they had lit and they spread it to the scrub, hoping that the wet and green wood would create a lot of smoke that would be easy to spot. They watched as the steamer rescued some people off on another part of the island and then swung in their direction. The Zelandia had been going on its normal route when it had come across several whaling vessels, all of which were flying flags of distress. The boats had been out all night, hoping for a passing ship to spot them. Slowing to see what was wrong, the men from the whaling boats told them a story that caused the Zelandia to immediately alter course. A boat from the Oligamite with 52 people on board had made its way to Hoora almost a day after the wreck and had raised the alarm. There were no ships large enough to attempt a rescue to Hoora, and so they had done the next best thing, and set boats out to intercept a large enough ship to save the people who they were hoping were wrecked on the Three Kings Islands. The only information the people on the lifeboat had been able to give them was that if there were any survivors, that that was where they would be. 
Once the people on the Big King Island had been saved, they directed the Zelandia to the spot on the Middle Island where the three lifeboats had landed. Zelandia was a more than welcome sight there as well. Better yet, Zelandia brought news that they had passed the Greyhound and had sent it to go retrieve the people who were stranded in Hohora. It seemed as though their ordeal was over. The passengers and crew of the Zelandia opened their sea chests, wardrobes, and pocketbooks for the disheveled survivors, as did the people who met the steamer in Auckland. Word had traveled ahead, and the town of Auckland had waited with anticipation to welcome the 89 people who stepped off of the Zelandia. Some of the people who welcomed the ship had known people on the ship and were hoping for good news. Some of them walked away disappointed. Even after the Greyhound arrived with the people from Ho'ura, not everyone was accounted for. One of the lifeboats with about 16 people on board disappeared without a trace. Although it had been sighted by several of the other boats while they had fought towards the shore, it was never determined what happened to it, though it was known that they had been struggling to make any progress towards land. More people yet had died of exposure and drowning immediately after the shipwreck. In total, there had been 136 passengers and 58 crew members when the Alingamite had left the dock. Of those numbers, 28 passengers and 17 of the crew died due to the wreck. The court of inquiry into the wreck found Captain Atwood guilty of grossly negligent navigation and suspended his certification. It was assumed that he had failed to note the location of the islands in question correctly on his charts or had misjudged where his ship was located in relation to them. Eight years later, however, a naval survey proved that the charted position of the Three Kings Islands was off by a mile and a half. Acknowledging that there had been an injustice done, special legislation was passed to reopen the inquiry, and Captain Atwood was completely exonerated from any wrongdoing. He had navigated the best he could, considering the information he'd had at the time. The Alingamite remained in the public mind for far longer than is generally expected for the very simple reason of her cargo. While the Alingamite was considered a passenger ship, she had cargo space as well, and in her hold, she had carried a consignment of freshly minted gold coins. Each shiny new coin bore the face of King Edward VII, on whose birthday the ship had come to grief. The depth that the ship had sunk in, and the primitive nature of diving equipment at the time, combined to make this extremely difficult. That did not stop people from trying. After the wreck claimed the lives of two experienced salvage divers, including the famous Edward Harper due to decompression sickness, interest in the wreck diminished greatly. It was true that the salvage efforts had brought up some of the gold, but no one was willing to try where the best name in the business had not only failed, but also died. It would not be until 1965 that a diver would set eyes on the Alingamite again. Doak and Tarleton had come to the islands to spearfish, but when they had found signs of the wreck, they had determined to come back the next year. Now they had found coins. The Alingamite had been carrying 6,000 gold half-sovereigns, and though salvage efforts had found coins before the early 1900s, everyone knew that the bulk was still on the bottom of the sea. On January 12, 1907, it had been reported that about 1,700 pounds of the 17,000 pounds on board the ship had been recovered, and that had been one of the last salvage efforts. There was also silverware by Hutter Parker that was more than worth the effort. The silver and gold at the bottom of the sea would keep calling Doak and Tarleton back. It would not only create a new commercial diving fervor in New Zealand, but it would also cement both men in the annals of treasure hunting. Once they had found one treasure ship, 
they would go on to look for more, and they found them. They never found the full payload of the Lingamite, though. The pile of shiny gold coins would elude them. If you would like to learn more about this wreck, please see the New Zealand Herald from Thursday, November 13th, 1902 for some early first-hand accounts, or see the sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.